A reading from Colossians, starting the first chapter, the 15th verse. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty Father, we were just hearing uh, Jesus say, uh, if anybody's going to come after uh, him, if anybody's going to be his follower, it's going to include a kind of radical um, uh, uh, surrender of self. What in the world could possibly persuade us to lay down our lives? And it's got to be that Jesus is better. Father, it's really hard for us to buy that. We are slow to believe. And so, Father, I ask for your Holy Spirit will you persuade us? And will you show us the beauty of Jesus Christ again? Or for the first time? Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat. And um, we are going to look at actually the first reading there from Colossians. And we're really only going to look at one line of the... Uh, reading from Colossians. Now, next week, we're going to start a big series in the Gospel of Luke. It's going, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke for months, uh, but that's next week. This week, uh, we're looking at just one line, and it's the very first line in that Colossians reading. It says this. It says, he, but it's talking about Jesus, in case that was unclear. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's all we're doing today. Um, but that one line, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that line captures in a very profound and deep way the animating center uh, of Emmanuel Church. Or at least it captures in a deep way what we aspire to be the animating center of Emmanuel Church. Now, if you've been around uh, Emmanuel, for just a little while, I hope you kind of, maybe, I don't know, maybe with an eye roll and, oh, Jim, here he goes again, you kind of know what I'm about ready to say. Do you know what I'm about ready to say? 
Emmanuel. Why, why are we here? Why do we exist as a church? Well, Emmanuel exists, some of you know where I'm going, to, you can join it if you want, see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. We're going to have to get better at that. But the, the reason we say that um, is because uh, it's a way of summarizing our purpose, and we don't want it just to be an uh, a slogan. It's a way of describing what is it that makes everything else alive. And if you're new to Emmanuel, I hope that that line gets sticky in your brain. But I want to tell you that six years ago, that line, Emmanuel exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City, that was an elaboration of verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So what I want to do is for the next few minutes, as we start the autumn, I want, us, I want to ask God to reorient us to the beauty of Jesus so that we can be absolutely captivated by him, either for the first time or again. And let me try to set this up. Um, Christians, when we are at our best, are absolutely captivated by Jesus Christ. And that may sound really, really obvious. Um, but Christians are captivated by Jesus in a way that's different from what we might expect. Here's what I mean. It's not just that Christians find Jesus you know, inspirational. We do, but it's more than that. It's not just that Christians follow Jesus's ethical teachings. We must far more than we do, but that's still, it's much more than that. And it's not even that Christians uh, revere Jesus as our kind of religious founder. That's true in its own way too, but it doesn't even come close to capturing what it is that we're talking about. The bond between Christians and Jesus is stronger than any of that. Uh, we have a letter, a 2,000-year-old letter, from a Roman governor called Pliny the Younger. And uh, in this letter, it's kind of interesting, he talks about um, how to persecute Christians well. Uh, it's a little bit of a coaching document to one of his uh, underlings saying, hey, um, if you're going to do it, do it right, and here's how you do it. And what was interesting in this letter is that if you read it, you'll realize that what was really offensive about Christians to the Romans uh, wasn't so much their morality, it wasn't their practice. What it was, what was offensive, was their bond with Jesus Christ. And therefore, Pliny the Younger says, if, you wanna, if, if you're going to do persecution well, what you need to do is you need to break the bond between Christians and Jesus. You got to, you got to, you got to leverage that apart. And what you got to do is you got to do, you got to torture them or whatever in order to get them to curse Christ and venerate Caesar. Now, what's interesting to me about this is that here's this 2,000-year-old uh, Roman governor, and he knew intuitively that it was this bond of union between Jesus and Christians that if you could break that, somehow he would be breaking the very heart of Christianity. And he was twisted, but he was insightful. Now, the interesting thing is that it ended up being surprisingly hard very often to break that bond. So we have a, a record of a guy called Polycarp. Don't you want to name your kid Polycarp? It's a great name. 
So Polycarp uh, was an early Christian. He knew many of the apostles, um, but he outlived them. And, and at the end of his life, he was arrested uh, by the Romans, not Pliny, but somebody else. And, um, and, and again, he, was, he, was, uh, he said, hey, listen, curse Christ or you're going to be tortured and killed. Uh, and here's what he said. Just listen. Polycarp said, four score and six years have I been Christ's servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Now again, notice the bond between Jesus and Polycarp. It's not just moral fortitude. Polycarp isn't just saying, I know right from wrong, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to do the right thing even though I'm facing torture and death. That's not what's going on. Nor is it like he's like standing up for his rights. Uh, I mean, he's not saying, hey, I have a right to believe what I want to believe in Roman Empire. You can go jump in the lake. That's, he could have said that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying... How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He's animated by a bond of union between him and Jesus Christ. And it's that bond of union between Jesus and the Christian, between the church and Jesus Christ, that's one of the strangest things about Christianity. If you break that bond, everything else in Christianity falls apart. And if you strengthen that bond, everything else in Christianity is animated. And what I want to do is try to explain why that's so from the first half of verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Double-click on that and everything comes clear. Okay? Let me explain. If you look at verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The Apostle Paul, in saying that, he's, he's drawing your, the reader's attention back uh, to the very beginning of the Bible, the very beginning of the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we call the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. Do you remember that? Have you read the story of Genesis? Do you remember that story? When you open up the very first pages of the uh, book of Genesis, what happens is you get a story about how God created the universe. Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, which is the cultural context where uh, Genesis was written, there were lots of different stories about the creation of the universe. Everybody had their own story. But in most of those stories and those cultures, what happened is the gods, plural, ended up uh, creating the universe on accident. Uh, usually, in a lot of these stories, something went wrong, uh, somebody had a fight, or, or some other unseemly activity was happening, and all of a sudden, oops, creation happened. But it was an accident. The book of Genesis was a revolution in the history of religion because Revelation, or Genesis depicted God creating the world and doing it on purpose with design, but it's more than that. Because Genesis depicts God creating the world with the care of a poet who is composing an epic. I say that because if you read the story of Genesis, you get the sense that there's this joy in God as God creates. Everything that God creates, he creates by speaking. That's why it's saying it's almost like a poet composing. God speaks, and then everything that happens as a result of what God speaks, God evaluates, and he just... He says, it's good. It's good. 
there's an explosion of joy as God looks at what God is making. And then humanity enters the picture. And, and Genesis says that God created humanity in his own image. Now, that idea that God created humanity in his own image implies many, many things. But part of it is this. Humanity was a unique part of the creation that was capable of loving God back. So it meant that humanity was, in a way, enough like God that we could receive his love and return his love. God looked at inanimate creation, trees and, and rocks and, and the sun, and said, it's good. But none of those things can love God back. Humanity was uniquely capable of receiving God's love and reflecting God's love back at him. And therefore, humanity could represent the world to God and, and God to the world. Now, can you see how revolutionary this story is? Instead of, you know, the world being a cosmic, oops. Instead, Genesis introduced into the world the idea that the deepest meaning of our universe is a bond of love between God and humanity. Now, keep that in mind because everything goes wrong, right? If you've read the story, you, re you remember the snake? Now, here's the thing with the snake. Uh, God tells humanity, Adam and Eve, um, listen, you can eat from every tree. I've uh, supplied every tree that you might ever want. It's here. There's one tree that, don't eat that, don't, don't eat from that tree, but everything else is yours. Now, the snake then comes in, and do you remember what the snake does? The snake, the snake's tactic is, is just like Pliny the Younger. It's just like the Roman, Roman governor. The snake wants to break the bond of trust and love between humanity and God. And the snake is not in the first instance trying to market the fruit. It, it's not, you know, an apple for my pretty. You know, that, that's not what the snake does. Um, what the snake does is he defames God. It's a little bit like this. The, 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 the snake doesn't so much say, hey, the fruit, it's amazing. No, not in the first instance. What he basically, what first he says is, is, did God really say? Which in so many words is something like this. Eve, are you sure you really know God? Like, how long have you known God? It's as if the snake says, because listen, God and I, we have, well, let's call it a history. And I know this God, and take it from me, he's not your father, he's your tyrant. He's holding you back, he's keeping you down. You really can't trust him, but you know who you can trust? I'm here for you, Eve. You can trust you. And in particular, you can trust whatever your desires say. Now, the snake's aim is to break that bond between humanity and God. And the snake does it by obscuring God's goodness, obscuring his trustworthiness. The snake wants to veil God. And so Adam and Eve uh, uh, can only see a kind of distortion of God. He asks, who is God? And he answers, whoever God is, he's not nearly as trustworthy as your own desires. 
And it works. Adam and Eve, they buy it. They exchange God for their own desires. They disown and they divorce their bond of love with God. And the rest of the story unfolds. Because it's that break in relationship that actually addresses a question that hangs over all of human experience. The question, one of the questions that hangs over all of human experience is simply, um, who is God? Is there a God? And if there is a God, can he be trusted? Um, just kind of as a side note, if you're here and you're completely non-religious, um, consider that. We're really glad you're here. Thank you. Um, Consider this, one of the things, what, that question, who is God, is remarkably persistent. Like, there's a lot of people who conclude that there is no God, especially a lot of individuals. But it's very difficult for human communities to evade that question, who is God, is there a God, is there a God whom we can trust? There's something in the human experience that brings us constantly back to that question, no matter how hard we try to avoid it. Now, keep all that in your mind and come back to Paul. Because Paul, in this writing, is saying that Jesus is the unexpected answer to that question, who is God and can he be trusted? In fact, that verse, verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, there's a way in which it sums up the whole of the, the Bible. The whole of the Hebrew scriptures, or the, the Old Testament, is this one sweeping story, and it's like the slow unveiling of who God is. It's a slow unveiling of the answer to the question, who is God and can we trust him? It's a little bit like the whole story of Israel. It's like a mosaic. Do you know what a mosaic is? It's, a, it's an image made up of little pebbles, that, different colors, and so on and so forth. And it's like there's the story unfolds, you get a little bit of God's face becoming more and more clear. And yet at the end of the story, you can see something of who God is, and yet there's still a lack of clarity in some ways. And that's when Jesus comes on the scene. And the thing about Jesus is the, he unexpectedly changes everything. It's like you see the mosaic picture of God from the Old Testament, and then you hold that up next to Jesus, and you realize two things at the same time. One, they're the same picture, but on the other hand, Jesus brings a clarity that is unprecedented. Now, can you see why Paul's statement, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, is so bold? He's saying Jesus is the image of God, which is to say the long, the long veiling of God is now over. He's saying humanity has always wondered who is God? Is there a God? Can he be trusted? He's, he's saying, you know, sometimes we've denied God. Many times we've run from God. Um, sometimes we've yearned for God. And yet the best thing we've often had is conjecture and guesswork. And we've never been sure. But Paul is claiming that Jesus is of a completely different order. He's claiming that Jesus is not the God of our imagining, but rather Jesus is God's own unveiling. And therefore, because God is now unveiled, he can be known. And the bond that was broken can now be restored, or in the words of verse 20, reconciled. 
Now, here's part of why I'm saying all this. Emmanuel, everything in the Christian life and everything, please, in this church rests upon that bond between us and God that's restored by Jesus. If we can strengthen that bond, then everything else will flourish. If that bond with Jesus begins to weaken, then everything else will disintegrate. I could say it differently. Everything we do here at Emmanuel Church, why do we do the things that we do? Well, everything that we do here at Emmanuel Church should be aimed at strengthening or expressing that bond of trust and love with Jesus Christ. So that should be the aim of our music. That should be the aim of our preaching. That should be the aim of our Bible reading and of our private prayers and of our gathering together. That should be the aim of our outreach. That should be the aim of everything. It should be the aim of our potlucks and everything else. Because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in the face of Jesus, we find a God whom we can trust. Although, as I say that, Jesus is the God whom we can trust. I'd love to know what comes up for you when you hear me say that. Because I could imagine somebody saying, wait, hang on. What is it that makes Jesus so trustworthy over and against everything else? What is it that makes Jesus believable over and against all the other, you know, ideas about God? Maybe, I could imagine somebody saying, maybe Jesus is just the imaginary projection of some culture's highest value. And if that's the question that comes up for you, I, it's a really important question. It's really good. And I'd ask you to consider this. One of the reasons you can trust Jesus and that he's not just the imaginary projection of some culture's highest value is that Jesus defied the expectations of every culture he encountered. Here's what I mean. In Jesus's day, no one expected God to become visible in a human being. Uh, Judaism expected a Messiah, but they did not expect the God of the Old Testament to show up in person. Uh, the Greek culture, uh, they thought the whole idea was bonkers because usually they saw the human body as something to escape and so that the idea of God, if there is a God over everything, the idea that he would put himself into humanity was just completely backwards to them. And then, you know, in the minds of the Greek culture, in the minds of the Jewish culture, Jesus really jumped the shark with the whole crucifixion thing. Why do I say that? Well, Rome crucified people all the time. We have the archaeological remains. We find bones with spikes through them, not uncommonly. But Rome, I mean, Rome would fill up mass graves full of the corpses of the crucified. But what they never did is write about it, almost. They almost never wrote about it because they were, it was their dirty little secret. It was so shameful, they wouldn't write about it. Jesus does the opposite. He is God entering human experience, and not only does he enter human experience, he enters the most gruesome type of human experience. And no one saw that coming. No one conjured that up in their imagination. Jesus defied everybody's expectations, and that is one of the things reality often does. 
But if you really want to know why Jesus can be trusted, you've got to consider more deeply his suffering. Now, here's why I say that. We live in a beautiful world. We also live in a world of exquisite suffering. And one of the many problems of suffering is that it is unmistakably real when you're in it. You know what I mean? You've suffered, right? You know what it's like when you're in the midst of the suffering and all of a sudden the teeth and the blood and the grit and the groan just kind of screams out in your ear whatever else anybody else is telling you. This hell is the real world. And you see, the gods of my imagining stay arm's distance from that kind of reality. The gods of my imagining, they, they, they chuck down a few divine commands and moral platitudes every now and then, but the gods of my imagining are always, are always at distance from the reality of my pain and my suffering. They're too divine to get their hands dirty. But then I look at Jesus and I see a God who is not of my own imagining. I look at Jesus and I see the image of God. God unveiled in the midst of a torture so grim it made the Romans blush. And that gets my attention because that tells me that there is a God who has entered the very realest parts of my life. And then when I keep on looking at Jesus Christ, I find myself asking, but why? Why? If there's a God, why would that God enter into the hell of this world and of my life? Why would he suffer? And when I ask that question, it leads me from suffering to love. Do you remember the creation story? Lots of cultures have thought that creation was a Oops. And Genesis is odd because Genesis says this whole world was rooted in an expression of love. And something similar happens at the cross because when you look at Jesus, you find out that not only did God create the world as an expression of love, but when humanity rejected him and canceled him and ran the other direction, he didn't give up on us. And not only did he not give up on us, he chased us down. And not only did he chase us down, he suffered and he became human and he sacrificed himself, verse 20, in order that he might reconcile us to God and make peace through the cross. And the thing is, he didn't have to do it but he did which tells me that the love with which God created the world is a pales in comparison with the love with which God has restored a bond between humanity and himself Emmanuel Jesus is the image of the invisible God he's not the God that we expect He's more beautiful than that. He's the God who entered the realest parts of life in order to reconcile you to himself and to animate your life with a love beyond all imagining. And so I want to just remind you of that and say, can you see something of his beauty? Because if you can, if you're beginning to see some of Jesus' beauty, if you can see some of Jesus, maybe even from a distance, if you can kind of say, Jesus, oh, if he, if he is real, he's a remarkably glorious person. If that's true, 
then that means that right now you're beginning to experience the defeat of evil. What? Remember the snake? He always wants to break the bond between you and God. Remember Pliny the Younger? He wants to break the bond between you and God. But when you look at Jesus and when you see his beauty and when the bond of trust and then love is restored in that moment, the serpent's crushed. But it's not just that. It also means that you're beginning to experience what it really finally means to be human. Remember, humanity was designed for a purpose, designed for that bond, and in that bond we could receive God's love and reflect God's love back at him. We could image God, we could represent God to the world and represent the world to God. And, but when that bond was broken, it's as if we lost the very heart of what it means to be human. But when you look at Jesus, when you see his beauty, and when you trust him, and when that trust matures into love, then that bond of love that unites you with Jesus Christ enables you to experience for the first time what it means to be human in its fullest. Emmanuel, why do we exist? We exist to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of New York City. Can you see why I say that? It's not a slogan. It's aimed to reorient us again and again to our deepest purpose and the deepest purpose of our lives. And if you've been to Emmanuel for a long time, then I want to say this. Jesus wants, us, Jesus wants to reorient us to discover his beauty in greater clarity than we have to this moment. Everything that really matters forever depends on that. Say yes. And if you're new to Emmanuel, or if you're kicking the tires, then let me say this. I want to invite you to join us in learning to see Jesus' beauty more clearly. Help us. Where are we obscuring Jesus' beauty? Help us see that so that we can stop it. And so that we can hold up Jesus' beauty more clearly. And then join us in that pursuit. And as we see Jesus' beauty more clearly, he will equip us to reflect his beauty more accurately. And that's how we will become a blessing to our city. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.